Hello and welcome to episode number 127 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, June 20th, 2011. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Jenea Donaldson, who is the host and producer of the online video program called Peak Moment Television. Television. Welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. It's good to be with you. Well, thank you. And um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your Peak Moment Television? What is it, and how did it get started? Peak Moment Television, which is now online and also community access TV stations, is a is a half hour series of programs about communities building their resilience and building their local reliance um, for in these very challenging times. My partner Robin and I um, produce the show. She's the videographer. I'm the host. And it, we've long been interested in watching the environmental concerns. Climate change has been on our radar for you know since McKibben wrote The End of Nature. But it was in 2005 when um, Kunstler's The Long Emergency and then The End of Suburbia Films came out that I, I had a huge aha moment that it would be very likely peak oil that would be a big wake-up to people that this way of living is unsustainable, that our, our limits to growth are here. And I thought that wake-up would be because it would hit people's pocketbooks, you know, economic. So I started a relocalization group in my community in Nevada County. And because Robin and I had been doing video productions in our, for our local community access TV station, local events, presenters, and plays, and so on. It seemed very natural for us to use those skills here to help wake up our own community. So we started Peak Moment in January of 2006, and my first focus was on food issues, because after I had my Peak Moment aha, or Peak Oil aha, my first question was, in this rural community, what are we going to do for local food? You know, there's a lot of stuff we can live without, but not food. So that's, you know, that's what was top of my head with those issues. Um, so in, in spring of 06, we had, and summer of 06, we had the opportunity to go up into the Pacific Northwest in our little VW bus. And by that time, I'd connected with um, coordinators of relocalization groups that were part of the network founded by Post Carbon Institute. So in that summer, we taped programs with people doing um, local community gardens and alternate currencies and um, where are we going with electric vehicles and um, you know things like ReStore where materials are being used. So a wide range of topics about you know moving towards sustainability. And that fall, we began to put those programs up on YouTube, which is pretty much where most of them are at this point. So we've had a lovely chance to um, see some very inspiring work with permaculturists, um, backyard gardeners, um, and in fact, relative to um, food production, Frank, the most popular show of ours on YouTube, where we have almost 2 million viewings, the most popular show is called How Much Food Can I Grow in My Backyard? So it really tells me that people are um, 
particularly with the economic downturn, that is a hot question for a lot of people um, on the individual, you know, family scale. Well, one of the notable things about this program that you produce is that you speak actually in person with many different people. And as you were mentioning, you get to visit uh, market gardens and permaculture farms. How is it actually that you go about the production process of finding these places and then traveling to these places and then actually producing um, an episode or several episodes of uh, Peak Moment Television? Great question. We, um, from the very beginnings when we were um, taping shows in 06, I have been building a personal network of people who who either email us or they're friends or they, they've seen our shows and make comments and suggestions to us and say, oh, have you seen such and such, the tool library over in Portland? So I am still collecting, I continue to collect uh, a list of projects that sound interesting that could be wonderful to tape. Um, most, most of, since we prefer to do it in person because it's, it's, Viewers, this is video. Viewers love to see real people, real places. Um, it, it's much more personal and it's real. If you really do see somebody digging around in their garden or working with their chickens, it's real to people, not just ideas. So, how we set up is um, Robin and I, in our first first tapings in '06, we have a VW camper bus and we piled all the video gear in there and headed north and, of course, used email a lot to stay in touch with people as we were you know, coming north. In the interim between 06 and 07, we, oh, excuse me, 06 and 2010, we um, followed our dream and bought a used RV and had it um, custom outfitted with cabinetry so that we can produce the shows while we're on the road so we can tape uh, some programs, if we don't have a, a location, right there in the RV. And the back bedroom is now a video editing bay and storage for video gear, so um, we can upload the shows as we're on the road, which we did this fall. That network of people, what we find is we come to a community, say Port Townsend in Washington, and we know a couple of people and have already arranged to set up and, and tape a few shows. For example, the one recent couple of them in Port Townsend were about food this time. People providing a local investing network into local businesses. What we find when we come into an, a community, for example, when we went to Port Townsend last fall in 2010, is that we tape a few shows, we knew a few people, and as we meet them and talk with them, they say, well, do you know about this happening in our community or that group of farmers? that there's a, a grain threshing project um, that we've never heard of. So the, the, the network that we build continues when we visit a community. So when we visited Port Townsend, there were people who were investing in local, a local creamery, using local money to help local businesses. There were people um, that had instigated community neighborhood gardens and walking distance of everybody, nearly everybody, that was part of these neighborhood gardens. Um, so what we do then is schedule a time to tape somebody and uh, their project and bring our video gear. Um, Robin is doing 
If it's a sit-down conversation, we'll use two cameras usually. If it's a tour of their garden or their project or their place, then it'll be one camera and she'll follow us around. And we basically do this in a kind of ad hoc way. We we sit down with folks and say, what are we mainly going to cover without talking about it? And where's the best place to do this, particularly if it's a tour? Let's do it this part of the garden or let's have the, the kid playing in the sandbox and we'll be behind him. Um, and kind of shoot on as we go. Since we produce these shows and put them online every two weeks, it's a half-hour-long show, um, there's not a lot of time in there for Robin to do editing. So we pretty much tape them, much like your radio show here. Um, so there's a minimal amount of work that has to be done before they can be shared. How, now, how does this work for you? You travel to different places and uh, go to these wonderful places and network with uh, these people. Is this something that you do purely on a voluntary on a voluntary basis, or is this actually something that uh, is a business for you? It's kind of both. Um, we started our work for pe- we started our work in video as a business, um, and. We do sell DVDs of the Peak Moment shows. We have, in fact, a series called The Best of Peak Moment on particular themes like The Backyard Garden, um, which has four of our most popular shows on that topic, or Local Businesses, which people can see at our website at www.peakmoment.tv. But we decided that this, this information is so important and timely and kind of necessary that we decided to make it available for free, which is why we've used YouTube. And and so it's a labor of love. We do get some money from those DVD sales and from community access TV stations who are uh, subscribing to our series and putting it on their local television station. Um, but I think I'd have to say, quite honestly, this is this is not a profit-making business. People can contribute. Actually, that has helped us some. We um, have a fiscal sponsor, so people who want a tax write-off can contribute to us, um, and we use that to, you know, to keep going. I wonder if you could talk about some of the creative strategies that you see as you get out there in the field um, and see all of these things that people are actually applying to address what you've called the peak moment. You know, I see on the grassroots level an awful lot of creativity and experimentation and um, people's optimism, people's vision of sustainability being, you know, being tried out on the ground. That's actually what's really inspiring and heartening to me because it's not happening at the structural level, the system, the political and governmental systems, not to any degree. So what I what I find is that People, um, people are using, of course, their own backyards as a starting place, um, trying out, say, the permaculture principles. One of our first shows in 06 with Jan Spencer and Eugene, he's got a, a permaculture makeover in his whole backyard. Well, he didn't stop there. He began to do tours with others in his, in his neighborhood to inspire them to do some solar or some rainwater collection or some bits of permaculture. So I see that um, people's strategies often start with taking care of themselves and then their interests broaden to helping others and their community because as Scott McGuire said to us this last 
fall, he, he does co-creative gardening. He's in southern Oregon, and he, he basically listens to the plants to tell him where do they want to be planted and next to whom and so on. And what Scott said is, you cannot have a sustainable food system by yourself, just you and your family. And he pointed out that if you decide to, to grow broccoli, you don't, and you, and you calculated you need 50 plants, you don't plant 50, you plant more because some of them may not make it. And so what happens when you get a bounty that you don't need? Well, you have surplus. And so what you do is you have a neighbor that you can share them with. Well, they're growing extra peppers. And so you begin to do the barter the exchange. So what I see is these naturally evolving processes that start small and then grow to the next level, the next circle. Sort of feels like sort of feels like evolution has done, you know, experimenting with a little something and if it works it, it expands on that idea. And I see see people doing that too on the grassroots level. Well, on one episode of your program that I really enjoyed, which was episode 147, um, and this is an episode where you go to Colorado and visit a geodesic geodesic greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you tell the listeners a bit about that episode and maybe also some other similar episodes where you visit and report on permaculture in action? The the geodesic greenhouse in in, uh, Colorado was one of those moments in which the person we came to visit said, oh, you know, I have a permaculture student that's doing this. Do you want to go down and, and meet her? And so we set it up in the moment. Chris Holstrom herself is a permaculturist, and we did a show with her on her permaculture gardens and um, a kind of greenhouse. And so she pointed us to and brought and introduced the show with Bree Peterson, who was her, was her student, um, really a neat way to deal with short winters, high elevation, cold weather. Um, what, what we got them sort of early in their, in their start of the greenhouse, I think probably within their first season. So they were learning all kinds of things. In that geodesic dome greenhouse, which had both um, carbonate panels so that it brings the sun in and they can really warm it in winter, but has ventilation so in summer when it's too hot, you've got you know, airflow. has a big pond in the back where they have fish, so they have the moisture um, for recirculating moisture inside the greenhouse. And they were tackling the problem, the challenge of how do we use all this vertical space? So they were working with trellises. They had made their beds, um, raised, very high raised beds with um, concrete sacks so that they were, you could just stand and work in the beds. Um, at that point, they were also doing some um, field uh, gardening. There were CSA. And um, so that was just, just getting started. So they were trying to extend the season. Um, we've had folks from Canada and elsewhere really inspired because that extended growing season, um, that greenhouse makes possible um, a whole environment that uh, was really creative. Permaculture. Let me think about this. We, of course, visited our first visit to permaculture, and really my introduction to it was with the Bullock Brothers on Orcas Island, who've been homesteading that for over 25 years now. And, and of course, my edu- I'm not a farmer. Um, I'm not even a gardener. And so I'm getting educated about food and food growing and um, 
lots of the topics that you're covering with some of your guests. The uh, the Bullock brothers showed us what they had done to return a, 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 a bo- the bottom land that had been turned into potato fields, how they returned it to the swamp that was originally there. So I got a sense of how permaculture intends to return habitats, not only collecting water in the landscape, but tons and tons of varieties of different exotic fruit and uh, other and vegetable plants they had brought from many different countries just to see what would work and under what conditions on their property there on Orcas Island. Um, so that was one of my introductions to to the whole systems way of thinking that, that permaculture has. Well, in this uh, relocalization movement that you and I are both doing uh, our part in covering and getting exposure for, uh, I think that there are some strengths and weaknesses of this movement. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. What are some of the biggest strengths that you see of this movement, and what are, what are some of the biggest weaknesses that you see? Well, I think the relocalization movement has the uh, the strength of uh, people not having constraints on the creativity and the imagination that they can bring to relocalizing their communities. I think that, um, and I think that where they can organize, where there aren't uh, regulations against it. Or, or they're going to need to start making regulations that work for it. Um, I think they. I think that. So I'm, what I'm saying, I'm saying that innovation is really good there, and I think that that there are an awful lot of forces that make that harder. You can't. In many communities, you're going to have to have new ordinances that allow you to have chickens in the backyard. Um, there are federal and state and sometimes local ordinances that keep people from being able to have raw milk um, dairies in their community. So I think that the bias of our of our American culture towards big business, big ag, um, is making um, is a force that people are running up against. And certainly corporate control of things, what Shasta is dealing with trying to just have local control of their water. Um, so I, I think that there's innovation in there, and I think um, there's an excitement in people getting to know their neighbors, a reliance that I think is going to matter a lot increasingly in the future years. Um, but it's not making change where, um, and I don't think really seriously addressing change, where the biggest changes, how do I say this, the, um, an awful lot of the problems lie. You know, for the federal government to decide what is organic that really isn't organic, to be raiding farms that are trying to do things local, and of course the whole, the whole horrible, frightening mess of, of GMOs, genetic, genetically modified stuff, which has of course gotten loose, just like everyone was afraid of. So I think that that it's not addressing things at a bigger, bigger structural level, political. Um, governmental, corporate uh, controls over those things. And of course, oh, don't get me started on all the stuff that's happening at the, the corporations taking being in control. Okay, so al- along those lines, I wonder if you have a sense 
that the idea of peak oil is becoming easier for people to accept as events seem to confirm the hypothesis? Or is the peak oil community becoming a marginalized group in a society that is now uh, what seems to be overwhelmed by propaganda? I think that there's, there's a kind of both end. I think that the idea that peak oil is basically here has wider acceptance. However, it has largely gotten overshadowed or muted by the economic collapse of Fallout 8. Partly it was one of the factors in it from the folks I read that opinion is there. But I think people are scrambling so much to just survive dealing with foreclosures and increasing prices that it kind of still isn't at the forefront of people's attention. Um, I think what I'm seeing with the groups that formed as peak oil groups, a number of them have have shifted to becoming um, transition or sustainability groups and so on, that their, that their mission, either they sort of have faded to the margin if there's not enough people energy, or they've, they've morphed into a broader, um, a broader mission about relocalizing their community. Um, I think the propaganda, I think for the majority of Americans, it's, it's not on the radar. It's still not on the radar. That that the news from the International Energy Agency that basically peak oil is here is kind of muted, and um, and more people are at the effect as their you know as their food prices go up in particular. Actually, I do want to add this: is I think one heartening um, aspect of something that has emerged um, in the last couple of years is that the relocalization network that was formed by Post Carbon, um, that organization transformed itself late in, in 08 and became a kind of think tank to bring forward um, good, good thinkers on many declining resources, including Bill McKibben, of course, on the, on the climate change and others on alternate energies and water and so on. And what they did is they, they moved their relocalization network to the just then forming transition U.S. group. And I think that is where a lot of the relocalization energy for many people focuses. There's a, a handbook written by Rob Hopkins, a movement that was has been very popular. It started in the U.K. And I think transition U.S. in the last two years is, is going great guns at forming new groups that are doing the relocalization in their, their part of the, of the world. Um, so I think that's a really heartening transform, you know, movement of energy from the smaller peak oil groups to the transition U.S. groups. So basically what I hear you describe, and it's my general sense of this as well, is that it's um, a very small segment of the population that is uh, highly creative with some great strategies and solutions, but also uh, somewhat isolated from uh, the broader culture. Although this is changing in some places, I would... Uh, mentioned my interview with Robin Francis, who is in Australia and who's actually uh, setting up permaculture vocational schools that are recognized by the government of Australia. So there are some good things happening. But in general, I think that characterization that I just described is correct. And so I'm wondering um, what you think that means for 
this concept of relocalization? I mean, is permaculture starting to become kind of uh, the 21st century equivalent of the monastic lifestyle uh, during the collapse of the Roman Empire, where people are preserving this important knowledge um, while other things around them sort of decay and, you know, saving it for future generations? Or is there still this hope that, uh, you know, society in general is going to be restructured along more sustainable lines? I, th- I personally think that permaculture has become far more uh, uh, an everyday word for people who are basically tuned to local food, um, healthy food, um, and and you know and their own growing and organic farming. I think that it, it is part of that subculture, not the mainstream. Um, I'm hoping that permaculture. I think that permaculture has more vitality than just. Yes, they are somewhat like the monastic tradition. And in fact, I think a number of people are thinking about um, preserving knowledge, skills, tools, seeds. Um, as part of even while they are growing things in the current time or testing with new, you know, with greenhouse permaculture greenhouses, I, I'm hoping that things are scalable. I think that's part of the idea. Maybe like what happened in Cuba when in the in the 1990s when the the Soviet Union collapsed and they didn't have their oil supplies that they depended on for their industrial agriculture and the permaculturists were instrumental in jump-starting, upscaling what they were already doing in the urban areas and upscaling it for many more, more gardens. That, that tradition of being a, a wisdom keeper, a knowledge keeper, um, to, to inoculate, if you will, the wider culture, I think that's the role permaculture is in now. If collapse continues as it seems to be doing, that's a role they may play. Um, I think we ought to be very grateful for the work that the, all those small experimental things are uh, are doing in so many communities. I just, but what I'd add is, it just still feels like such a small percentage, based in, in comparison to the need. Frank, when I go into a, you know, look at any into the Bay Area, into the Seattle area, and I see all the houses, all the people, all the cars, and I realize. It feels to me that trying to have just even reasonably local food uh, food growing for that population feels to me like a daunt a daunting task. You know, I'm by nature an optimist, but I still look at it and say, I don't know how that can be done. Well, when you talk about the scalability of these concepts, um, I mean, uh, for me, technically there are some significant obstacles, but I think that they can be overcome. What concerns me the most is on this issue of scalability is the psychological preparedness of our general population and i wonder if you have any thoughts on that are we psychologically capable at this point of scaling up uh, things like permaculture and you know geodesic greenhouses or or whatever the actual specific technological application might be or practical application might be um do Americans, contemporary Americans, have the 
mindset to be able to to do that at this point? I I feel like basically most Americans the answer is no. It's what I what I think that America is still in a kind of um, bubble, dream, illusion. Um, that progress will continue and the systems that are in place that are already delivering their food or fuel or whatever will return. And I think that denial still runs pretty high. Um, I think for some some people the bubble is getting popped, but I even look within my family or other friends' family and, and people are still hanging on by by a thread of hope that um, the American way of life and the American dream will continue. So I think that I'd have to say, no, I don't think Americans are psychologically ready. And actually, one of my worries, Frank, is about the next generations or two. It looks, I mean, as as a boomer, I look back, I look and say that it's the young people that need to be taking their good young energy and putting it into the, the upscaling of permaculture. And I don't see them either psychologically prepared or even having the information that says the need is there. Um, so my concern is, where are the young people? And I do see them. I mean, in my own community, we have a wonderful uh, network called Living Lands Agrarian Network. And these in this rural community, we've got young people who are um, using land, by, you know, older folks who have land, and so thus they don't have to pay for that land price, and are farming and gardening and raising animals and so on, and that's heartening. Um, but I, that's one of my worries. Well, I think one of the difficulties for people is that, you know, since we've existed in this relatively stable environment for quite a long time, it's difficult for us to have things to compare it to. One of the things that comes to my mind as a good uh, social example to compare to would be India um, in the 20s and 30s uh, at a time when they were struggling for independence. But it seems, you know, the success of Mahatma Gandhi was, I think, in large part attributed to the fact that there was this very well-organized social movement uh, that he was able to step into, and um, many of his messages and ideas resonated with that social movement, and they were able to organize themselves accordingly. And so I wonder, you know, if if somebody could actually go back to that time or somebody who lived through that time and could see it. I mean, it, it could have only been 10 or 15% of the population, but it was enough and they were well organized enough to where they really had a powerful impact. Actually, make a, a good... Uh, it's a good reminder there about a cultural movement, that if we had a sort of a culture of sustainability or a, a culture of um, local reliance or whatever one called it, um, your example in India reminds me of the cultural revival for the Irish at the end of the 1800s that later became the movement towards independence for Ireland, including a resistance movement but it was based on sort of a cultural pride. Um, I'd love to see that happening, and I, I suppose your question might be: Are we? Do, is there? Are there? Do we have early beginnings of that in the permaculture slash sustainability relocalization movement? I hope so. I think it's possible. Um, I think we're going to have to wait and see. Well, along those lines, a lot of people 
who gravitate towards peak oil theories seem to be on the left of the political spectrum. Uh, do you think that's true, and why? Well, I think on the left of the spectrum, the progressive, the sort of progressive band are, are folks who have been trying to work towards individual freedoms and um, sort of more liberal policies and less centralized control, less um, and decentralization and so on. And I think that I think that's where many of those folks have been came from perhaps the civil rights movement or the environmental movement. And so this is sort of the next um, area of concern. I think that's that's my sense of the peak oilers. Um, I think that it it suffers a little bit from the the leftist tendency to have lots of good innovative thinkers, but having a hard time organizing themselves as a movement or as a body as a because they're not all going to follow one leader. We don't tend to have that happening as much in the left as we do in the conservative or the right. Um, so I, but I can't, you know, yeah, that's, I don't have a whole lot more on, on that one. I don't, I don't see the left sort of becoming that cultural revival. I, I'm not sure that I see indicators of that one. Well, one of the things that puzzles me about this is that there's a lot of people who are, you know, more on the right side of things or who are more libertarian or even folks who believe in things like the New World Order um, and uh, world government and that type of thing, who it seems to me the ideas of relocalization and permaculture and uh, local food would be very appealing, although perhaps for very different reasons. And I'm wondering, um, you know, it seems to me if there's going to be some kind of mass awakening or even just a, a small but large enough minority to where things can actually, where people can actually start to see those change in the, changes in their community, it's going to have to be really broad-based and diverse. I wonder if you see uh, some of those bridges being built amongst some of these different groups and these different uh, political ideologies or these different cultures and uh, these folks kind of working towards this common cause of relocalization. Do you see that happening yet, or do you see that that is something that's potentially on the horizon? Frank, I don't see a lot of evidence for it, but I think it's on the horizon, or it's happening in a stealth method. And by that I mean we're seeing... um, community gardens being formed where political political stances are not part of the story at all. People have a mutual concern for we need to grow food for ourselves and oh by the way let's let's get some surplus for the the food bank. And politics aren't aren't sort of left and right aren't sort of in the picture at all. Um, churches growing, you know, doing community gardens. I think this may be um, the, the 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 hopeful thing is that this is the, a stratum of of shared mutual concern that sort of goes beyond what is your religion and what is your politics. Um, that I that I do think is is happening here. Um, I'll note that that um, in in Port Townsend when they organized um, neighborhoods around emergency preparedness. 
You know, we're an isolated uh, peninsula up there, and if services got cut, which could easily happen, the bridge goes out, um, how do we in our neighborhood take care of each other? And it transcended those kinds of, of identifications. And people in the neighborhood, because they want to help each other, got together and formulated their ways to do that and become more neighborly. So I think this has the potential of sort of mutual gain, uh, mutual, quote, survival. I don't, it may not be as desperate as life and death, but mutual um, value um, as people start exchanging services and goods and foods and helping each other that really will kind of leave politics as something secondary. I think that's possible. I think that's in the works. So why don't you tell us uh, what the future brings for Peak Moment Television? Well, this last fall, Robin and I um, traveled for two months in the Pacific Northwest, and we taped mm, 50 or 60 shows while we were there. So we have a few in the backlog to produce for a while. But it's so met our dreams of getting to see different parts of the country and meet really inspiring people doing good work that we are choosing to continue that forward here on the continent. Um, so what we are doing here as of spring-summer of 2011 is preparing to rent our house, which is um, in rural Nevada County, and it's off-grid, so it's not your ordinary house. So we're preparing that so, so someone can rent that. And then we plan to live out of the RV and slowly make our way across the U.S. I've got contacts, not in every state, but but many people along the south, a lot on the eastern seaboard, and then up through the Midwest and parts of Canada. And I'm hoping to get more connections, both urban and, and uh, suburban and rural, and uh, take a sort of a leisurely, you know, trip around the country to see what are people doing to relocalize. Um, so that's our dream for the next few years. Keep producing the shows and meeting new people. And and as we hear from the folks that watch us uh, on, a, on the YouTube, it's inspiring people themselves to take action. And that's, that's really heartening. That's why we're doing it. Well, that's great. And hopefully we can check in with you uh, as you make your way around the country and uh, get some updates. Oh, we'd love that love to do that. Thank you. Well, on that note, Janiah Donaldson uh, of Peak Moment Television, thank you very much for the work that you're doing, uh, putting all this great information and all this great video out for people to see. Of course, I will link to your website and YouTube channel page on the show notes of this podcast. And also, uh, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. I'm glad to be with you. That concludes this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And, of course, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to check out Peak Moment Television. Uh, there is a lot of great information, something that uh, this podcast does not provide you with, which is a lot of visuals. So you can uh, see that geodesic dome that we were talking about or many of the permaculture gardens that ha they have gone to visit, uh, which I think uh, adds a whole new dimension and uh, again, I'd like to thank the folks at Peak Moment Television for doing the great work that they do. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. 
And of course, that means that the information in this podcast is free for you to use in your projects. So please do so. And if you do, let me know. And I will share that with the community of listeners. The Agro Innovations Podcast is on Facebook. You can find a link to that on our webpage, agroinnovations.com slash podcast. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.